Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us. We've got a backlog of listener questions, so we're going to try to clear some of those out and dedicate the news and current events discussions to responding to your questions this week. We've also got a great conversation with Mike Arnott, a man of many hats in the airline business, including journalist, commentator, PR advisor, and data geek. He's just back from the IATA general meeting in Doha, so should have some good information to share with all of us. Okay, Ben. Well, every Wednesday from 12 noon to 12.30, the British Prime Minister hosts Question Time, where he or she fields whatever is thrown from members of parliament. So we're going to do the same and call this Question Time. Here we go. Patrick, who I believe was one of your students last semester, asks... Why do airports have so many obscure restaurants slash shops, i.e. the Magic Pan restaurant at Dulles Airport or Sky Asia Bistro at Philadelphia? I thought this was a funny question from Patrick, because I guess definition of an obscure restaurant is one you don't really see in very many other places. Now, I've seen Magic Pans in other places. Can't say I've seen a Sky Asia Bistro but maybe there's one. Basically, Patrick, airports make money on the concessions in the airports. The restaurants that go there pay rent to the airport, and the airport takes a cut of the revenue usually in some sort of deal. That's why, for example, why you don't see breakfast at lots of Chipotle's. If there's a Chipotle in the airport, they likely will have breakfast because there's usually rules the airport requires that if you're going to be here, you have to be open during these hours and things. So while I can't say exactly why Dulles brought in Magic Pan or Philly brought in the Sky Asia Bistro, my guess is that those restaurants either individually negotiated a deal to be there to get more exposure for their restaurants by being where a lot of people go, or it's possible that one or both of those restaurants are part of a bigger chain. And so by having other restaurants of that chain around, they get to put one of maybe their lesser well-known brands there. That's my guess. What am I missing, Chris? Well, I think the other thing is probably most airports have either minority-owned business or small business set-aside requirements. So you're not going to have just a bunch of large chain, national chain outlets, whether it be shops or restaurants. Uh, there's an obligation or a con contractual obligation to bring in local businesses and uh, small businesses beyond just the big chains and, and national franchisees. So you're going to see these random things. And Patrick, Magic Pan used to be a thing. So probably before you were born, it was a much bigger chain, but it did used to be a thing. And then Ben, another one of your students, Barry, posed this question. 
Many airline executives who encourage their senior pilots to take early retirement during the pandemic are being criticized now for not having enough pilots available to meet the demand. I know that hindsight is not 2020, but aren't they paid to forecast demand and shouldn't they have sought better ways to reduce costs during that time? Well, thanks, Barry. And Barry is not only a former student in my class, Barry had a long career working at the NTSB. So this is a guy who knows a lot about the industry on the safety side. And so this is a pretty astute question, I think. Thank you, oh, Barry. Good. I, I was afraid it was Barry Biffle asking you, but go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I think the issue, Barry, is that when the pandemic hit, The only thing the airlines knew is that almost nobody was buying tickets. Revenues dropped more than 90%. And yet all the costs of their airplanes, their lease rentals at airports and ground equipment and everything, and all their crew costs continued. So airlines were in a position where they were hemorrhaging cash. Now, you're right, they are paid to forecast demand, but this is something that the industry had never seen before. People at that time were saying, well, is this going to be like 9-11? Is it going to be like the financial crisis of the late 2000s? Is this a two-month problem? Is it a two-year problem? And so before the government stepped in and said, we'll give you money to keep people employed and such, airlines took draconian measures. They called lessors and said, we can't pay you our lease rates. They stopped all discretionary spending on every project. And then they realized that if they could offer early outs to the most expensive employees, maybe that's something they would regret later on, but it certainly helped salve what was a very deep wound at that time. Now, with perfect hindsight, would they have not offered as many early outs? I think you're absolutely right. But the pandemic did last much longer than people expected. The industry, even with three tranches of government support still lost oodles of money during this time. Fortunately, they stopped having to get rid of people as a way to do that. But it's hard for me to criticize them doing this when they had nothing to base a forecast on, nothing that had sort of hit the industry this way, and we're just looking at a, a huge cash loss It's a weird thing to make an analogy of, but in 2008, when I was at Spirit, we had 35 airplanes. Oil got to $147 a barrel. We couldn't make money on most of our routes with that. So we returned seven airplanes prematurely to our largest lessor. And literally six months later, we wish we hadn't done that. Six months later, oil prices had come down. Our costs had gotten even lower. We wanted to grow, grow, grow. We said, man, I wish we had those airplanes back. But at the time, it was the right decision because it kept the airline alive. And I think it's the same kind of thing here. Well, Chris, here's another question from Patrick. What are the pros and cons of having the military investigate its own crashes as opposed to the NTSB? I'd kind of like to get Barry's view on this too, actually. Well, that's what I was thinking. Barry's going to keep us honest here. So, Patrick, good question. 
and this is what I know, and I will happily stand corrected by our listeners. So the NTSB has authority if there's an aircraft incident involving a commercial and a military aircraft, but their charter is to investigate commercial and private aircraft and private transportation entities and not the military. So you're right, and the military investigates their own incidents. Just to a great degree, there's this is a matter of, of national security because military planes are often equipped with, with uh, intelligence gathering and other what we might consider kind of secret equipment and capabilities that um, have to be guarded by the military's own apparatus. So they are certainly able to consult with the NTSB um, and rely on their expertise. But I think it's um, part of the military's charter with regard to not just effective uh, warfare and effective defensive activity, but also the effective flight and use of those aircraft. And their investigations, again, have an element of, I don't want to make this too cloak and dagger, but there's an element of secrecy that often goes along with this equipment. So I think that's the basis for that point of view. I think you pretty much nailed it, Chris. But I see Patrick's point that the advantage of the NTSB for commercial flights is they're an independent agency. Yes, they're part of the FAA, but it's not the people who do the regular oversight of maintenance, pilot training, other operational support for airlines. So it has this air of independence. And you might say the military would also want an independence to avoid any issues of maybe putting pushing things under the rug or, you know, protecting people or things like that. But I think the reasons you said, Chris, are the right reasons. And so it probably does make sense. The fact that the NTSB has in its charter the ability to deal with military airplanes, I don't know this for a fact, but I would be surprised if there haven't been times that the military has called in the NTSB to actually help understand why some incidents have happened. Remember, everyone, that Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. And this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Well, Chris, another question from one of my students, and this is a question that I've answered probably a million times in my career and probably several times too to Shireen, but I'm guessing you have too. So I want to see if your take is different than mine. He writes, 
I still don't think it's fair that the person sitting next to me on the same flight could have paid hundreds of dollars less than me. Why isn't everyone charged the same price for the same product? Shireen, good question. It's a question that has come up over and over again. Let me give it a try, but airline seats are historically viewed as a perishable commodity. They are worthless when the airplane takes off, and so revenue managers try to maximize revenue by pricing the seats at different times of the sale process at different times. So if you buy way far out and are willing to buy a non-refundable fare, for example, you We'll probably get a better price, but the airline also holds seats back for that last minute business traveler. And so on the expectation that there will be demand the day before a flight to get to New York for a business meeting, there are seats that are held back from inventory and then priced at a higher level. Now that model has been turned upside down over the past couple of years as business travel evaporated and a lot of pricing has flattened out. And also how people travel is very different. And we've talked about this multiple times on the show about fewer like day trips and more longer trips. So it's really harder to ascertain who's a business traveler and who's not. And many times that same trip has multiple purposes. But I would liken this uh, more to like, if you know, if you wanted to go buy tickets to a baseball game or to a Broadway show, if you are buying them off of the theater's website or Ticketmaster or some marketplace where it's the original ticket, you're right for the most part that the price of the tickets, like in a section, along the third baseline, rows 10 through 20, or the, the loge section of the theater or the balcony or whatever it might be, those are all priced pretty much alike. But then you take those tickets and six months later, you go look for the tickets on a resale site like StubHub. The prices are going to vary because at that point, the marketplace is pushing the demand and the pricing. And so the price might be higher than what was originally paid by the ticket holder, or if the show is a bomb or the team is sinking in the standings and no one wants to go to the game and the owner of the tickets is trying to unload them, you might get them for a bargain. So it's the same kind of a concept in the uh, resale market of theater and sports and other kinds of things that you typically have historically seen with airline pricing. Ben, I know you could do better than that. No, I like your answer, Chris, and you added some things that I wouldn't typically say to this. The other things I'd say are, while the person next to you says they paid a couple hundred dollars less, that's why you know that, right? You, number one, you don't know if they're telling the truth. Number two, they may be flying only that segment, your ticket might be because you're connecting at the hub and going beyond, and you didn't think about the fact that your price was $200, but you're not going to Chicago, you're going all the way to Buffalo. The other thing that could be true is as that flight got close to departure, maybe it had a number of empty seats, 
And so the airline moved that other person, offered a cheaper fare to move that person to that flight. Maybe they really wanted to go on a later in that day or earlier in that day flight, but by offering a cheap fare, incented them to get on that flight, allowing them to resell the seat on maybe a more demanded flight. So for all those reasons, that too could suggest in addition to everything Chris said, why someone pays less than you. Well, plus we didn't get into corporate discounts, but I don't think the average business traveler really understands or knows the details of their company's corporate discount. They just know that this is the fear that the company paid. So, But there are a bunch of other factors at play. I, th- I think that's right. So Ben, last question. This is from Leslie in Miami, and it's for the both of us. Guys, you must have had your share of not great flights. I like the way he says not great or she says not great instead of lousy flights. You must have had your share of not great flights. What's the worst flight you've ever had? Then you go first. Okay, this is um, this maybe is an airline brat's answer to that question, okay? But uh, a number of years ago, my wife and I were taking a vacation to Easter Island. For those of you who don't know, Easter Island is the most isolated inhabited place on the planet. It's 2,300 miles off the coast of Chile and another 2,600 miles to Tahiti from there. The only airline that flies there still is now Latam. At the time, it was Lan Chile. And the at the time we went there, the only paved thing on the island was the runway, right? <laughs> which the United States built as an emergency landing spot for the space shuttle, because this island's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And if the space shuttle needed to land there, at least they'd have a runway. And so anyway, we took off and were probably two hours over the Pacific when the pilot came on and said, we have an engine problem, we have to return to Santiago. So we were in the plane for five hours, landed back in Santiago, Chile, were put up in a relatively flea-baggish hotel and didn't fly for two days later, cutting off a trip that was supposed to be a week long, and we ended up only spending like three and a half days on this trip we had planned for years. So to me, that was the worst flight I ever took. <laughs> I'm sure you can beat that one, Chris. <laughs> a, a real first world problem there, Ben. Mine is somewhat different and probably, yeah, probably worse. So it was my oldest daughter, Christina, was a baby. She's turning 30 this week. So this was like almost 30 years ago. We were coming back from a airline slash airport conference of some kind from Tampa to back to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Linda Daschle is an old friend, longtime airline and airport lobbyist, and then eventually the deputy administrator of the FAA. And at the time, married to Tom Daschle. She's still married to Tom Daschle, but at the time, Tom was the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. And we were jammed into a flight that was probably four hours late with thunderstorms or whatever else. And so I was holding Christina on my lap again. I learned, I think from this lesson, never to hold the baby, put her in a car seat. But there was no seats. Uh, they were The flight was oversold. So I was holding the baby. Linda was talking to Christina. And she said, can I hold Christina? And she's playing with Christina. And Christina barfed all over Linda. 
So, uh, so uh, and I, I still remember that very clearly. So I don't think Linda listens to the podcast, but Linda, I still remember that. I hope you don't. Um, that was probably my worst moment in the year. Well, that's a, that's a good one, Chris. And it is a different style problem than the one that I talked about for sure. Well, with that, we'll be right back with Mike Arnott. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We're very excited to have with us today Mike Arnott from Juliet Alpha Media Relations. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ben and Chris. A uh, longtime listener, so it's exciting to be uh, here with you guys today. Well, if you've listened, you know that we ask all of our guests to introduce themselves. And so tell us about your aviation background and where you are today. Yeah, very good. Well, I run uh, Juliet Alpha. It's a media relations firm in the airline and aviation industry. We only represent airline and aviation clients. And if you think about every aspect of the industry, whether it's you know an airline or data that the airlines use, new technology or the creation of new pilots, eVTOL or serving food on board, we represent firms in sort of each of those verticals, ranging from the Star Alliance to Cerium, the data firm, and you know an ultra-low-cost carrier in Canada called Flare. What we do is we help our clients tell really their their stories to the to the global media. So, Mike, you work both as a PR rep, but then also you're a data geek, and you're a popular source for the media as well as for your clients. How do you balance all this? And you know, where did you get into the data mining business? Well, you know, in truth, I started through writing and I was writing about airlines and airplanes prior to starting our media relations firm last for the New York Times. And when I was writing for the Times and for the other publications like the Point Sky and, and CNN or what have you, you're always looking for a good source. One, a source to either illustrate a story or a source to corroborate the other reporting that you've done. Um, and so I stumbled upon Cerium, which is sort of the leading airline and aviation data firm, way back when I was uh, writing and I found the information quite useful. Um, and so then when I started the agency, uh, Cerium, you know, was a natural fit because other reporters want this data. And so that's uh, that's sort of how it all started. Well, Cerium is a great source for scheduling and airline data. And Mike, I thank you for teaching me how to use some of the basic tools of Cerium. You told us how you got involved with them, but since you're regularly using the data, what can you tell us about the current state of the industry sort of based on what Cerium is saying right now or what Cerium is collecting, I should say? Yeah, well, so let's geek out a little bit here because the data really is interesting. I mean, I think sometimes the data helps tell the story and sometimes the data is the story. So of the moment, you know, you see news reports about cancellations, on-time performance, the schedule surgery, both minor and major that the airlines are undertaking or, or you know, increasing fares. But let, let's take a look at maybe a geek out a little bit and, and take a global and then maybe a regional approach. So 
let's get into some data. We sort of exited or started to exit the pandemic in the early part of the year. Then the Omicron variant sort of put the sticks in the spokes of, of global recovery. But Right now, as we end 2022, Cerium data shows that we're going to be about 20% down on global capacity from 2019. Now, what does that mean? That means the number of seats that are flying around um, and not necessarily the number of bums that are in those seats. So down 20% globally. But if you sort of laser in on North America single aisle jets in the North American market, so that's your Boeing 737, A220s and A320s, their utilization is actually up about 1% higher than 2019. So just let that register for a minute. That means that there's 1% more flying of those bread and butter aircraft going on right now than there was before the pandemic. So that's like this this North American or the US market is is on fire. There's another market that's even more on, on fire, and that's Latin America. Single aisle jet utilization in Latin America is up 9%, which is truly amazing. So you're seeing folks in Latin America with the likes of Gol and Azul and Avianca and Copa really, really getting back up in the air. Europe, the opposite, still down about 9%. Asia Pacific, very much stunted. And the Chinese market has been way up and way down compared to 2019. And right now they're way down. So they're, you know, a little bit of a roller coaster run. So that's the kind of data that I look at all the time. One interesting market is the transatlantic market. So the North Atlantic Travel Corridor. Right now, so those are, you know, all of our tourists and, and to some extent business travelers going across from, you know, Newark to London. Uh, we're, uh, we're at about 85% of 2019 levels. And there's some pretty fascinating stories of airlines that are really taking advantage of that. Turkish airlines, they've, they've doubled their flying compared to 2019. Finnair doubled their flying. Tap Air Portugal, Air France, and United are each up about 17% on that transatlantic flying market. So this is definitely a revenge travel summer, and a lot of the airlines are taking advantage of it. So Mike, as we're talking, you're just getting back from the IATA general meeting in Doha. What were the headlines that you saw? We saw you know, some of the media coverage, but what was the kind of cocktail party chatter and what you picked up on? Well, the first bit of cocktail party ch- chatter was that J-Lo performed. Um, so that was really surprising. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And Christina Aguilera. So, um, you know, only Qatar Airways, which was the host, can um, can pull that off without a um, total shareholder revolt. But the IATA AGM is really, really interesting. There's no better forum to, you know, rub elbows with the who's who in, in global a- aviation. Um, Stan Deal was there from Boeing. Stephen Udvar-Hazy. Um, Willie Walsh, Scott Kirby, you know, Karsten Spore and I sat next to each other watching J-Lo, which is kind of odd. Um, you know, Ryanair, EasyJet, Wiz, my client up in Canada, Flair, Spirit, Frontier, they don't go to the IATA AGM. Um, so it's sort of a different kind of group. Um, it's about 290 airlines, but it's still quite an, a neat global event that's unlike any other. The airline CEOs there were obviously very optimistic. 
before the AGM, t- Sir Tim Clark, who's the uh, Emirates chair, said that he saw the problems that were coming as, you know, nine out of 10 in terms of difficulty for the industry, whether that's pilot demand or rising fuel or the Ukraine crisis or the COVID uh, lingering impacts of COVID. Willie Walsh, who's the former chair of IAG and, and British Airways, said, nah, it's more like a three or four out of 10, saying it was sort of business as usual. So there was a little bit of like, uh, are we going to be worried about this potential looming recession and, and the like? And generally, people were really optimistic. Well, that's encouraging. And uh, the media reports that we've seen here were equally encouraging about the tonality of the meeting. So it's good to hear from someone who is at the source. You told us a bit about Turkish and Latin America narrow bodies and things. Mike, can you take us sort of around the globe in two to four minutes and tell us maybe by continent, what are the biggest stories around the world airline-wise? Well, that's a, that's a very broad question, but yeah, let's do a global tour, if, if you will. So we represent the Star Alliance. It has a global footprint of 26 member carriers, and that, they'll be a good one to help us take a little tour around, around the world. And, and to some extent, I think it matters whether you're a network airline or, or a low-cost carrier. The network airlines and the alliances are really, really hard at work trying to, I think, retain their most loyal customers. They know we're going to come out of the pandemic. They know that there's going to be a fight for those loyal customers. And so they're doubling down on things like the passenger experience, particularly for the passengers that are, that are sitting in the nose of the airplane, you know, better food options, more sustainable practices, better use of digital tools and, you know, allowing customers easier ways to earn and burn their points across the network. Low-cost carriers, and I think this goes globally, they are very much up, up, and away, and they've been nipping at the heels of those network carriers. Domestic capacity um, is way up for those guys. It's the same story in Canada, in the United States, where you know Spirit and Allegiant Frontier have really added so much more flying than their network peers who seem to be trimming more and more. Latin America, Avianca has pivoted towards a more low cost model and is partnering up with the the other success stories down there like Goal. Australia, there's going to be a new carrier called Bonza, um, which is a cousin to Flair Airlines up in Canada. And and of course, in India, Indigo is really ruling the, the roost. So I think those network carriers want their loyal customers and those low cost carriers just want as many bums and seats as they can. More of our conversation with Mike Arnott in just a moment, but a quick reminder. If you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your carrier operations. So Mike, pretend I'm a magic genie, although a genie with a dad bod. And I could grant you one wish, and you're an airline CEO. Which would you pick as the priority? Finding enough pilots, operating reliably, the return of business travel and yields, overall cost control, including fuel prices, or meeting all your sustainability goals? Which, which one would you pick? I think it has to be operating reliably. And I hear that from everyone that I ever speak to. 
you know, let's talk about the one thing that the media is really focused on, which is pilot demand. That's probably going to write itself over time, pay those pilots a little bit more, take a look at different systems like the EU has a different style of system to get pilots into the right seat. There's new ab initio flying programs. At the AGM, Akbar al-Bakir, who's the chair of Qatar, said, we need 900 pilots. We recently advertised for it. We had 20,000 applicants. So like this pilot demand part is an important piece, but I bet any airline CEO would just as much love to have uh, great ground handling, effective partners at the airports, whether it's passport control or security, and, uh, and, and, and that whole mix of the interface between airlines and airports and air traffic control. Well, another one on that genie list that you didn't put as your top, and I understand why, but one that we've talked about a lot on the show is business traffic. What's your view, looking at data, talking to airlines, is business traffic changed forever, or is that narrative just overblown and everything's coming back? So the first thing I would say is that a lot of airlines pay close attention to try and figure out who's a business traveler and who's traveling for leisure. And it's sort of a mysterious bit of their booking flows. In my view, from the people that I talk to, business traffic is is decidedly not going to be changed forever. I think you're going to see some micro trends that emerge and people are going to use Teams more, but there's nothing like having a good conversation with a client at a conference and I think the minute that someone thinks that they lost a business deal because they didn't do you know, enough face-to-face time as opposed to actual FaceTime on the phone, they're going to uh, question whether or not we should be putting salespeople back on the road. So I think it's a good news story, but ultimately it's going to come back and probably more so in the future. So Mike, where do you rank the industry? And I know that's a broad definition, but where do you rank the industry with regard to its use of data in decision-making versus intuition or knee-jerk competitive reaction, for example? This is an industry, I think, where data rules the roost, and I, unless there's personalities that rule the roost. But even if there's personalities, I think the data rules. Like, just think about the history of it. In, in you know, 1953, when uh, the salesman from IBM sat next to the president of American Airlines on a flight and they decided that, you know, there's a better way to keep track of reservations than on a, you know, paper system that takes 90 minutes to, to put through a reservation. Like, from the 1950s onward, I think the idea was not that we were going to computerize bookings, but that American airlines could immediately track their seat inventory and their demand as opposed to a couple of weeks to do it. It's not the hardware, it's the data that comes out of it, I think, that was the real revolution. You see that at the airlines with some of the tools that I use. They came out of demand from airlines. In the case of a popular product, which is Dio, and that's used by airlines around the world, it was a CFO at United that asked his network planner hard questions, like how many flights are leaving Newark compared to the flights from a year ago? And that was a hard question to answer with the tools that existed. And so they built a system to do it. So it's it's data, I think, rules the roost. And, and I've seen that time and time again across clients. 
So if I could follow up on that, there are airlines, though, that seem to follow intuition more than data. Do you think they're putting themselves in a real tough position, given what you just said? So the most operationally efficient airline that I uh, I think is well recognized is Delta Airlines. And Delta Airlines is measuring on-time performance at a standard that's even higher than what's used in the industry. I think if you want to be the best airline in the world, you have to use data. And that's not a sales pitch. I don't sell. I just I just know what the data shows. And the most operationally efficient airlines are all laser focused on data points day in and day out. So then what happened to the data collection and analysis and modeling with regard to staffing? That is a very good question. I suspect that there is a human element to staffing that is much more difficult to track than whether or not your airplane is going to arrive on time at the gate. And that human element has to be somewhat unpredictable because that's clearly a challenge facing the industry now. I do think some airlines are much more realistic about their operations and their ability to deliver the schedule that they promise, and not only that, to deliver the flight that they promise to the customer than other airlines. And you see that with schedule trimming that's happening now. It was one airline a little bit earlier in March for their summer. It's, you know, today another airline is, you know, doing some more surgery. It's hard, right? They want to put as many people in those seats as they can. They want to utilize those planes as much as they can and run the tightest schedule that they can with all of the constraints. But the human factors sometimes screw it up. One thing that was really interesting earlier this year is that it only took, and I spoke to a lot of industry sources about this, it only took about 10 pilots at a hub for one airline to protest a particular measure in order to screw up the entire schedule for about a thousand flights. So that's a pretty, you know, amazingly constrained system, balancing on the fine razor's edge. Great insights, Mike. You know, going back to your business traffic thing, I have two stories from Spirit I want to tell you and get your reaction. One is that when we surveyed customers, routinely 30% of them would tell us that they were on a business intent, even though we had no sales force, no corporate contracts or anything, and they were buying the same fares as everyone else. So you're right. The industry really doesn't know why a lot of people travel. Clearly, if you buy off a corporate contract, they might say, yeah, that's a business customer. But I think that's a tougher issue. I think you're right about that. And finding a good data way to understand that would be helpful to the industry. The other thing I was going to say is we used to joke at Spirit that at the time American was running ads saying, American Airlines, we know why you fly. You may remember that ad. Sure. And um, we used to joke that if we ran an ad, we would say, we have no idea why you fly. We just know you're cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And so, so tell me what you think. Is there a way to get better at understanding what business travel even really is other than just the fare code? 
One thing that you see quite a bit in a similar kind of fashion is customer satisfaction and net promoter scores. So you'll see that pop up. How likely are you to fly American Airlines again? Or how was your experience? Was it great or not? Yes or no? Just a very binary option for customers to try and collect just the bare minimum amount of data. And you see that in the booking flows as we talked about. I think what also adds a wrinkle is that increasingly there's something happening called bleasure. And you see a lot of those airlines start talking about it where people are tacking on an extra day in Miami to go and hang out on the beach. Or in my case, I spent, you know, 12 more hours in Qatar um, taking a tour of the sand dunes. And so while I was a business traveler to that event, I also had a certain portion that was leisure travel. I, I think that there are smart minds at the airlines that are thinking about how to find those people. And I think the easiest way, and it's probably not easy, in fact, it's not easy, is the idea of building a loyalty program that allows for personalization, that allows the airline to build that one-on-one relationship so that they can tell right away if you're more likely to be a leisure traveler or more likely to be a, a business warrior. So, Mike, you are a lousy data geek in that you're much too conversational and interesting to be calling yourself a geek. But this has been a great conversation. Um, I think our listeners will enjoy this. But uh, we appreciate your joining Airlines Confidential and hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Anytime. And um, yeah, like I say, I never was a data geek until I started to really see that the data does tell the story. Well, and that's the line of the show. The data are the story. And that's always been true in the industry, even though not everyone's always gotten that. With that, we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Well, it's time to give a shout out to close down the show. And my shout out's going to sound kind of boring, but I'm really excited about it this week, which is that the government removed the requirement to be tested before boarding a flight back into the U.S. And since I took this trip to London uh, just for a couple of days, it was so comforting while I was there to not be anxious that I'm going to have to test 24 hours before and I know I've been vaccinated and boosted and you know never put myself in compromising positions but what if I test positive am I going to be stuck here and I was worried that might be the case and the fact that it wasn't I just had a much better trip as a as a result so my shout out goes to the government for removing that requirement I'm sure it was needed for a time but I'm glad it isn't anymore. And while we haven't had a chance to talk about the United Pilot Agreement reached in late June, I do want to give a shout out to one provision that is long overdue. There are eight weeks of paid maternity leave in this new tentative agreement that the United Alpha members will be voting on. So let's hope that is clearly a provision that all the airlines match. That's a great one. And that is a really good thing that United does there. Well, It's hard to answer a lot of questions on each show. We try to get two or three in with each show. I was glad we were able to get more in this week. 
And with that, we're going to say goodbye. Again, the dog days of summer, lots of people traveling. Please stay safe out there and have fun wherever you're going. And if you're traveling this summer, please have some patience. I worry that the U.S. airlines are going to struggle on really busy days for weather, staffing, lots of reasons. Have a good week, everybody. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.